and welcome to another edition of the bar of the double uh, A team on the Barroom Network. I'm Ken Fang, along with Stephen Nagishi. Welcome to have, well, glad to have you on this another Monday night, and uh, a lot of things to talk about, a lot of things to to discuss. Uh, Stephen, we also have a couple of guests tonight, and who do we have on the show? All right, well, we have a little bit of a change uh, from our last uh, announcement. Uh, we were supposed to have Eric Winolda tonight. Uh, as a first guest, who's a, a former U.S. men's national team soccer player and a legend, which is uh, in conjunction with the uh, U.S. men's national team making their final uh, three games in the uh, Qatar World Cup qualification. And somebody who's represented the country and is a very uh, ardent critic of the uh, U.S. Soccer Federation and the men's team. I was very, very looking forward to having him, but uh, he's currently uh, working with the uh, the traveling soccer team, so he wanted to uh, reschedule at another time, and uh, we obliged, and we hope to have Eric at a, a different time, hopefully when the men's national team uh, already qualified for the Qatar World Cup uh, this upcoming week. So instead, we have Mr. Alan Trio, uh, who is a uh, Midwest recruiting analyst and an expert for 24-7 sports. He's a Vietnamese-American living in Michigan, uh, has agreed to come on at the last moment. Uh, we're really, really excited to have him to talk about the uh, the college football recruiting, uh, how they come up with the system, and the uh, the current state of uh, the Big Ten football, since we don't know, we're based in Chicago. Uh, and for the second guest, um, I've been in touch with this man for quite a while, having lived in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, Jonah Jabat from WFAA in Dallas, uh, sports reporter and uh, anchor for their uh, uh, news station. Uh, we're going to talk about the, uh, the sports in Dallas. They're making uh, quite a news headlines, uh, both the Cowboys and the Mavericks, both uh, on and off the field. And we look forward to having those guests on tonight on the show. Uh, let's talk to our first segment. Of course, the AA team is about Asian um, and uh, about the Asian community and what has been going on in the Asian world. Um, one of the things that has happened, um, of course, happened over last year. We came upon the one-year anniversary of it, and we were reminded about what happened was the Atlanta spa shooting on March 16th, 2021, in which three um, unfortunately, three spas were hit. Six Asian women were killed. Uh, eight people overall were were, were shot. And uh, it, it's something that uh, haunts the uh, Asian uh, uh, community to this day. Uh, there were commemorations about this over the weekend. And they were really great to see. And um, um, Stephen, uh, it was just one of those things that... Uh, we still remember, and of course, in this, in this, one of the reasons why we have this show is to discuss what we can do as Asians to to stop this hate and stop the anti-Asian crime. And uh, it, it's one thing that uh, really hurts me to this day. Uh, without a doubt, Ken, um, I mentioned this before. Um, I lived in Atlanta for five years. Uh, sorry, uh, for a couple of years when I first moved here. Uh, back in 2014. And I'm very familiar with that area. I've drove through the area where the shooting happened many, many times. Uh, my final several months in Atlanta, I used to live not too far away from the uh, where the spa shooting took place. 
So um, I have a very uh, vivid memories of driving through those areas myself. Um, and and it, it hits me really, really hard, Ken. Um, um, it, it, and it's also shocking how fast time goes by. And to think that it only happened about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that, uh, you know, does haunt me uh, as somebody of, uh, you know, who used to live in that area and have a very fond memories of living in the Atlanta area myself. We see the footage over there and it just brings back uh, horrific memories uh, of what people had to witness, um, the targeting of the three spas, the targeting of the women, uh, of the people, customers and employees who were shot. You see the pictures of the of the women who uh, who are the victims there, six of them who died. And I'm just uh, to this day and uh, still shocked over the the, the, the hate that uh, this anti-Asian crime uh, that occurred. And you see the suspect there. Um, he pretty much knew who he was targeting. And, uh, you know, it, we certainly hope this is why we have this show, Stephen, is to, uh, to, to bring more awareness to the Asian community and hopefully stop the, uh, incidents like this. Absolutely. You know, um, there are very few people working in the uh, sports and entertainment industry. And, uh, you know, we talk about these things uh, from time to time because the uh, media have a powerful influence on how we're being viewed and how we're being portrayed, you know, historically in the movies and television, which were very, very uh, unflattering. And, you know, to still to this day, sometimes it's... um, uh, it's how you know that uh, stigma still carries on uh, within our community, and you have COVID um, that has uh, you know destroyed the uh, you know killed people, economy, and everything all around the world. It just uh, you know adds more uh, stigma and uh, pressure to our uh, community. And as an extension of that, uh, what we saw also. Uh, on the one-year anniversary of the shootings was uh, Asian actress Karen Fukuhara, who is on starring on the um, Amazon series The Boys, uh, was attacked. We don't know exactly where she was attacked, whether it was in Los Angeles or uh, in Austin, but uh, she was also attending the uh, South by Southwest conference uh, this week in Austin. So she was assaulted uh, and hit in the back of the head. She says she's okay, but um, really, something like this, Stephen. Again, um, you, you, it, it, we see things like this. We see uh, not only the uh, crime against Asians, but also against the uh, the 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 black community as well. And uh, it, it, it's we, we hate to talk about things like this, but this is why we have this show to to, to bring awareness and also to sh- to to say stop. We need to stop this because um, you know we're all in this together, and we all w- want to be. Uh, show you the, the fact that as Asians, we love sports as, uh, and entertainment as much as anybody else. But when you, when, when Asians are targeted like this, it just really, it, it really sets us back. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And we've had very difficult conversations with our guests. Um, you know, uh, Asian Americans working in the uh, sports and entertainment industry, which unfortunately there are not a lot, uh, but you know, uh, I believe we've given a platform not just for ourselves, 
but for the our guests to openly talk about the overall state of our industry uh, and how they feel about it, you know, COVID or no COVID, and uh, you know their uh, presence within the um, media, and uh, we will continue to uh, give uh, AAPI guests the opportunity to speak uh, on on behalf of the community that they represent. And uh, we're going to keep on talking about what the role of uh, media, uh, where what they have to do to give us a platform to speak out on this matter. And if they're not going to give us the opportunity to speak out, then chances are, you know, we're going to create our own platform, just like what we have uh, with the, the Barroom Network here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, of course, we have uh, Naomi Osaka has been one person we have discussed quite a bit on this program, uh, going back to her days at the Olympics. Um, she also had an incident happening over at the Indian Wells tennis tournament last week where she was heckled uh, during the tournament. Uh, she broke down crying. And um, I, I really don't. First of all, um, heckling at a, a, it's one thing to boo a, a sports team. But when you boo an individual athlete, whether it's male or female uh, at, at a tennis uh, tournament, that's where you're kind of drawing the line. And, uh, Stephen, I, I, I hate to see things like this because, um, you know, Naomi, is, she's in a fragile state right now with her mental health. And uh, I think someone tried to do this to try to get a reaction out of her. And he succeeded. It sure is. Um the headline that you just saw was a uh, Fox Sports uh, radio host, uh, Ben Maller, making comments about uh, her reaction to Heckler making all female athletes look bad. bad. Uh, Maller has a history of attacking Naomi Osaka, dating back to when she retired uh, French, uh, French Open because she wasn't uh, in the right state of mind to you know, face the media. Um, and 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 I have a real anger anger, you know, reading the the text as you see there as to what he is saying. First of all, um, let me let me just say this: Ben Maller is wrong on so many levels that um, Naomi's reaction hasn't drawn any rebuke from. Uh, the other female athletes around the world. Nobody has come out and criticized her, maybe with the exception of dudes like Bam Maller, who works overnights and has to work extra just to get uh, attention from the others uh, because he works overnights and has to resort to attacking somebody like Naomi Osaka, which he has, he has done on more than one occasion just to get a rise or something. Okay. First of all, her reaction does not make other female athletes look bad. Is uh, Sue Bird, Megan Rapino, um, the the Williams sisters, who's received a lot of uh, you know hatred and criticism, has she spoken out and called her out? I don't think so. More importantly, only people like Ben Maller, who are such a chauvinistic dudes who has to attack Naomi Osaka just to get clicks or just to, 
you know, make their points across in such a, a, fall, a fallacious ways that uh, it just makes me really angry. And and I'm not going to try and tie to what happened with Karen Fukuhara and the Atlanta spa shooting, but people like Ben Mallers are the ones who attack women, especially the Asian American woman, that makes it so easy to accept attacking women and considering what we have dealt in our community for 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 the last couple of years ever since the pandemic has happened it's a dangerous message that people like ben maller are sending that attacking naomi osaka is a justification as to supporting other you know uh, you know female athletes when he has shown no significant voice in voicing out the victims of larry nassar's or U.S. women's national team fighting equal pay and stuff like that because I have never heard anybody like him or the Darren Rovells of the world speaking out in support of women's equality and women's rights in sports. So I don't want to hear people like Ben Mallon, Ben Maller, I'm sorry, using Naomi Osaka attack as a, some sort of a justification of what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, um, what Ben said, uh, we don't endorse here at all. Uh, we also, uh, it's one thing to attack an athlete saying, you know, uh, he or she isn't stepping up or criticizing them for their performance. But then just to say, uh, to make the comments that he did after she called out, tried to call out the fan for heckling her. I mean, that, again, you're trying to use your platform to get attention on an overnight slot, uh, which isn't heard by many people, by a lot of third shifters, and, and maybe shut it. So yeah, you, you gotta you have you have to, you have to consider the source, Stephen. But um, we're 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 also glad to call out this behavior. Right. It's a uh, it's it's sickening. You know the uh, the sports media, which is uh, you know very you know uh, male driven media. And, and Aldo pointed out that uh, Osaka did it to play the victim and make money because victimhood is a money maker. It is reprehensible. I, and I totally agree. Um, what Did he have to say anything about Simone Biles uh, when she openly talked about her mental state during the Olympics and when she had to retire uh, from uh, one of the competitions, you know, which turned out to be her final ones? I don't think so. I mean, is there some sort of a double standard because Simone Biles is considered mm -hmm. an, uh, more of an American, whereas uh, Naomi Osaka is a uh, you know uh, biracial uh, female of uh, Asian uh, descent? Is Ben Maller, you know, is, is he is he making himself look like a racist without saying racist stuff? You know, th this is one of those things. And mm -hmm. uh, listen, I'm not going to have uh, people like Ben Maller on our show to make some sort of an excuse because obviously he he thinks he's too big of a, a guest to even come on to our show. But, you know, we're going to continue to call out these people. Um, you know, this needs to be brought up because if we don't bring it up, somebody else will eventually. Yeah. And uh, we want to make clear that Aldo didn't say those things. He's just quoting what uh, Ben Maller said. But, uh, but Aldo did say that... Uh, it's just reprehensible just to make these type of comments. So thank, thank you, Aldo, for coming on. To, and we want to make that clear. Uh, yeah. Our other uh, issue uh, that we topic we like to bring on in this in this segment, of course, what's happening uh, between Russia and Ukraine. We did talk about this two uh, weeks ago. Um, the UK government has sanctioned Roman Abramovich, who is the owner 
or was the owner of the Chelsea football team in the English Premier League. Um, he is looking to sell the team. And um, the Premier well, League... Technically, he's sanctioned now, so he cannot sell the team. He can't I sell think. the team. Okay. So right. basically, it's just basically in limbo. So uh, the, the team is basically in limbo. I think. Yeah. But I could so, be wrong, but now that he's sanctioned because UK has... UK government has actually uh, taken the team away from him. Uh, I read stories about Chelsea being so broke or at least close to being broke that, that their credit card, uh, team credit card has been uh, uh, stopped. Mm -hmm. uh, they're actually talking about flying to Spain with the the rival Manchester City in the quarterfinals of the Champions League because oh I, I believe Ch Chelsea's playing Real Madrid and Man That's City right. is playing... Uh, the, the Real Madrid's rival team, Atletico Madrid. So mm. that's how bad it is. And in the uh, game last week in the FA Cup, they asked the Middle, Middlesbrough team to play without their fans because they cannot allow to sell tickets to their to the Chelsea fans, which which drew huge huge criticism and a and a, a rebuke from the uh, you know the media. Uh, as as calling them out for being such arrogance. Mm -hmm. So Chelsea's in a huge, huge uh, trouble right now because they also have a $1.5 billion loan that uh, Abramovich has said they will that they will probably write it off. But uh, obviously the Premier League and the uh, FA and the UK government are going to investigate if that's even remotely possible within the law and all, and all of that. Yeah. And uh, Abramovich, who uh, spent a lot of money on Chelsea, helping them to bring championships galore. Um, and as a Chelsea fan, it, it hurts me to see this, but also at the same time, um, you know, s seeing sanctions against oligarchs uh, is, is something that that has to be done uh, by well, by the Western world in regards to what's going on in Ukraine. But at the same time, there was a local angle to all this, uh, Stephen. And let's bring that up. In the in fact, the the, the Ricketts, who the Chicagoans know and love as the owners of the Chicago Cubs, are in talks with the possibility to buy the uh, the Chelsea Football Club. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. You also see Jets owner Woody Johnson is also thinking about uh, bidding as well. Um, American um, interests have been buying up the. Um, English Premier League, for instance, we see this with the uh, Red Sox ownership led by John Henry that owns Liverpool. So this is not um, this is there is precedence for this. It's going to be interesting mm -hmm. to see um, what do you think the Ricketts are actually going to be coming out and uh, buying Chelsea at, at all, uh, Stephen? You know, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting story because. Uh, first of all, there's also um, the Glazers uh, who own the Manchester United and the owner of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They also right. own the team as well. Right. Um, and then, you know, the Buccaneers obviously have had more success and, you know, the amount of money that the, the Glazers have taken up loans to buy the Manchester United and then the lack of success ever since they took over. Um, has been uh, has been a huge criticism by the Manchester United fans globally. So the Ricketts obviously are not in good standing with the Cubs fans, including myself these days. Um, and and teaming up with a local billionaire Ken Griffin to buy the uh, the Chelsea club, uh, I, I I'm not really quite sure where the ideas 
who came up with the idea within the Ricketts family? I don't know what kind of synergy they're thinking about because obviously the Cubs and the Chelsea's other than the, uh, the color blue that they share, obviously nothing in common. And you have uh, Woody Johnson, who was a US, UK ambassador under the Trump administration. And you mentioned the Jets owner that, that might have a little bit of more of a leg up because he was in UK and know, uh, you know, the, the country and the, the atmosphere a little better, but there's also a Saudi-backed uh, group that are interested in buying because Boris Johnson, the UK's prime minister, recently met up with the Saudi officials to perhaps buy oil from them. And we talked about sports whitewashing on this show previously with the Olympics and everything, uh, with the uh, FIFA as well, mm-hmm. the world san- uh, sa- soccer uh, sanctioning gov- governing body uh, that has been criticized for you know, being too lenient to Russian, uh, you know, dating back to the 2018 uh, World Cup in Russia, among other things. And Newcastle, uh, the long struggling team that was recently bought by the Saudi backed uh, group, uh, Manchester City is owned by the UAE uh, consortium led by the UAE government. So there are, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, teams that are non-UK uh, ownership that have taken up, uh, you know, premier Premier leagues, yeah, including the US. And there was an article uh, that was on C- CNN uh, talking about UK uh, Premier League. I'm sorry, facing some sort of a reckoning right now. Of being too lenient or giving these oligarchs and the uh, the Saudi Arabia you know princes um, an ownership where they spend tons of money you know you could call it maybe money laundering to some degree um, you know the Saudi Arabia executed 81 people about a week and a half or a week and a half ago I remember and they own Newcastle and. You know, the fans of uh, Newcastle and Chelsea, they they complained about uh, their teams being unfairly targeted. We talked about Chelsea's uh, sanction uh, with the uh, Abramovich no longer in control. And the fans were openly complaining about things like that. So, you know, sometimes it's hard to ask morality for, you know, sports fans like all of us to be aware of, you know, who the people behind control of these owners and, uh, you know, it's, it's probably fall on uh, deaf ears to some degree as well. But obviously, you know, sports should not be used for whitewashing tools for whether it's the sanctioning government bodies or the owners of these clubs, you know, wherever the money that they're coming from, uh, because it just makes it look bad for uh, everybody involved in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, too, about the Ricketts, they um, uh, signed uh say uh, suzuki and uh asian player something that uh steven and i are quite excited about uh steven let's talk a little bit about that and the signing of the of the player so he played in the uh, mpb in japan uh he played for hiroshima that's the uh, a very small market club that has uh, produced uh you know a lot of uh, ex uh, major leaguers like uh, kenta maeda with the dodgers and the twins uh hiroki kuroda with the uh the, the Dodgers and the Yankees. And now uh, he's the other uh, 
the latest uh, Japanese player from that team to come uh, come overseas. Um, he's a he's a great hitter, uh, really good on base percentage guy. You know, when you think about a Japanese hitter with the Cubs, we only remember uh, uh, Fukudome uh, back in 20, 2008. Uh, Kosuke Fukudome, sorry. Um, you know, he fizz, he started very, very great. He even went to the All-Star in his first year. But after that, his career really, really fizzled, unfortunately. Excuse me, unfortunately. And... You know, we talked about the uh, AAPI racism and stuff like that. And women obviously have been uh, taking a lot of blunt of, uh, you know, attacks and uh, all over the country. But, you know, I want to preach patience with Suzuki. You know, I know a lot of Cubs fans on the uh, the Barroom Network, uh, you know, who are frustrated with the Ricketts. And, and, I'm, uh, and I'm one of them, too, to be honest with you. And, you know, the Ricketts obviously trying to divert their attention to buying Chelsea is not going to help the Cubs fans' sentiment that they have obviously not done enough to help, you know, uh, bring this team back to where they were in 2016 when we won the World Series. And, and this team is nowhere near that. But that's obviously for another time. You know, with the, uh, the sentiment of uh, AAPI racism at an all-time high, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, some drunk fans in the uh, the bleacher seats, you know, yell out, uh, you know, racist, obscene, you know, you know, obscene gestures or words. Um, maybe he probably don't understand English well enough about it, but maybe somebody that uh, on his team might hear some real stuff. And hopefully the Cubs uh, will be there to speak out on those matters if and when that happens. I, I certainly don't want that to be the, the case, but if and when that happens, I hope the Cubs will take necessary actions, and I hope the uh, the baseball world will take necessary actions against those when it happens. And we'll be, and we'll be keeping an eye out for that uh, in the in the coming weeks, and the, especially when the baseball season begins. Um, our first guest is ready to join us. We will have them coming up after this message as we continue on the AA team on the Barroom Network. And don't forget, we'll also have an announcement about the show coming up at the end. I just wanted to mention that, but that well, that'll be that's one way to keep you. Stay, make, make sure you stay tuned. So that's all that coming up on the Barroom Network. This is the Double uh, A team, and we'll be right back after this. Ellis Hall, since I came here, has been expanded twice. Both times after we were gone, by the way. So <laughs> we never we never got it. But I mean, it was tiny. Do, do you think that uh, Olin Krutz would politely ask you to leave the weight room because it was so crowded? <laughs> you, of I told you what Olin I told you what Olin used to say to me. I know that's why I'm asking. <laughs> no, and and that was at five o'clock when there's you know there's no players around. <laughs> oh, Olin, it's yeah, so you get the f- out of my weight room. <laughs> Oh, and I go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I got a commercial. <laughs> we are back on the Double A team here on the Barroom Network. Ken Fang along with Stephen Nagishi. Let's bring in our first guest, Stephen. Let's bring him in. All right. Uh, we want to thank this guest for coming on on such short notice on, on uh, instead of Eric Winolda tonight. 
Uh, he is the recruiting analyst for 24-7 Sports in the Midwest. Uh, he's also an occasional contributor for the Big Ten Network as well. Alan Trio, thank you so much for coming on, Alan. How are you? Hey, doing well. Thanks for having me. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? It's true, like like true and false. Oh, okay. Alan True. My apologies there, sir. It looks like true. <laughs> But thank you so much for coming on to such show notice tonight. We appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem. Um, give us a, a you know, uh, an overall be, uh, where you started your career. I understand you back in uh, when you were still uh, in intermediate school, you started your uh, own NFL draft site, correct? Yeah. So I was really into the NFL draft growing up, really into the NFL period. Um you know, when other kids were, were doing whatever else, doing <laughs> coloring books and things, I was actually making mock drafts and writing them out. My mom still has some of them. I wanted to be Mel Kuyper. That's, that was my, <laughs> my dream. So in eighth grade, um, everybody had to make a website in class. I decided to make mine about the draft, um, wrote about the draft and watched games and wrote scouting reports and things. And it led into, you know, career. I got credentials for the NFL Combine a couple of years later. And uh, went there as a, as a teenager, as a young man, and uh, kind of then transitioned into recruiting a couple of years after that. Alan, um, talking about uh, the draft, of course, um, the NFL is a 24 uh, 7 newsbeat, and uh, pro days are coming up right, right about now. We're seeing them all, all, all uh, popping up all over even liberty is having its own pro day along with their own uh, the major colleges what's it like to having to now instead of just going to the combine and seeing just uh, the the draft prospects having to learn having to worry about also covering individual pro days all over the country yeah so now i've transitioned more into covering high school recruits so the high school kids who are going to be those college players who eventually will be in the pro day. I go to a couple of occasional pro days just to see some of the guys who, you know, I, I wrote about or knew when they were in high school work. Like I was just at Western Michigan to see some of those players work out. But for us right now in the spring, we're going to high school recruiting camps and combines where all these high school kids from different states come together and uh, they, they, they do drills, they, they compete, and it gives us a chance to see them kind of compete against one another. So transitioning to covering high school uh, recruiting, which obviously really uh, all year round thing now, you know, with the, uh, you know, the Internet and the uh, television. Um, we have we know about the four star the five star ratings for the recruiting and stuff, stuff like that. H how do you come up with that? And, uh, you know, what is what is the level of accuracy that you've uh, had to you know, when you scout and, you know, look at the players in person and on tape, you know, you give out stars. Uh, what, what's been the accuracy rate and uh, how, how confident have you been uh, in giving out those stars? Yeah. So first, in terms of how we come to them, uh, the first level is obviously their high school film, which is much easier to come about now. They all put them on a website called Huddle or, or they can share them digitally. When I first started, we had to try to get them all to mail us vhs tapes and dvds which was a lot more difficult than just clicking a link now we can even watch i mean we can stream high school games every single friday night um from from the comfort of our own homes we still go out to the games but it's much easier now to to watch those back um and have archives so we start with the film 
We then go to some of the camps that I've just talked about. We go to college camps in the summer where the schools are working the kids out and trying to determine if they're going to offer them a scholarship or not. And then we also look at, you know, data that we can come across. Uh, more than ever, we're looking at, you know, testing numbers. We're also looking at track times. We're looking at other sports. We find that a, a high number of players who go on to play beyond college, have success in college, and then play on Sundays, played other sports when they were in high school. So we've looked at that more and more. And I think that, that you know, throughout the course of my career, all of those things have allowed us to get more accurate as the process goes on. We have more information about the student athletes than ever before. We see them much more than ever before. We have more resources to be able to do that than ever before. Um, and, and, you know, with the, just the amount of accessibility of information is much greater than when I started. And that's helped us uh, become very accurate. Now, I think that it's very difficult what we're doing. We're taking a sometimes 15, 16, 17-year-old high school player and trying to project what they're going to be like at 2021, 20, 22, and beyond. And so you're going to have some late bloomers who we miss on. You're going to have some players who are highly regarded who, for whatever reason, don't turn out. That happens. Um, I, you know, We just talked about the NFL draft process. They go through extensive research on these players. Um, they, they, the NFL does incredible research on them. They, they, and they're also evaluating 22-year-olds, not 16-year-olds, and the NFL still gets it wrong. So we're all going to get them wrong from time to time. But like I said, I, I feel much better about where the process is at today and also feel good that we are going to continue to get more accurate with each passing year. Because also, in addition to all the information, we're also just getting better at this. When I started, I had no uh, nothing to compare my information to. Now I can now I have years of experience to pull from. You talk about um, the access that you have now, but talk about some of the things you talked, uh, you're trying to get, you trying to get that tape. You made that you those phone calls you had to make um, the, the literally the, the, the footwork that you had to go, go through to go through all this. Um, how now you compare what you had to do 10, even 10 years ago to now, Alan. It's very difficult. And, and now, you know, 24 seven sports We're owned by CBS interactive. It's a big deal. People turn on ESPN and they can see, you know, the all American games. People are very aware of recruiting and what recruiting sites do. When I first started to call up a high school and say, Hey, I'm from such and such. And I need you to mail us a video of your, your best players. People didn't really weren't that familiar with what we were. So sometimes it was difficult to get the high school coaches or the parents of the players to even trust us enough to, send us this information, even try to understand how, why it was important. A lot of the time, they, that's what they would ask us. Like, why do I, why do I need to do that? Why do I need to send you this information? Um, so it, it was a real process of getting all that sent. I was in college at the time, so I was getting boxes and boxes of DVDs mailed to my dorm room at the time. I think our, our mail person at the school kind of wondered what I was up to in my room. But, um, and, and then the travel, you know, even, even traveling was tough. I remember printing out map quest directions and trying to find my way to Ohio or was, you know, Wisconsin or these other states that I was going to, everything is a lot easier now. And then you, I would have to find a way to get a hold of these kids. Um, now they're all on Twitter. They all know where to find me. They have, you know, I can email, I can do, do a lot of different things. Now, back then, sometimes it was really, really hard to just track down contact information for a student athlete. I see. Who is the, uh, the biggest, uh, you know, as a recruiting coordinator uh, analyst, who is the biggest star that you got right in, you know, who you got wrong from the, uh, the you know, the Big Ten and uh, or, or somebody from the Midwest that you cover? Yeah, so 
It's a good question. I remember the ones I get wrong a lot more than the ones I get right because those kind of stick in your crawl. Um, right. I would say TJ Watts, probably one of the biggest ones that I got wrong. You know, we, we, oh. we just, it was hard to, he was in um, Pewaukee, Wisconsin. I did go up there. I saw him in a practice and uh, you know, he was, he was like 195 pounds at the time. I think he was playing wide receiver tight end and it was just hard to see that he NFL you know, outside linebacker, pass rusher at the time. There were definitely some things that looking back on it now, I should have looked at and, and been able to get that one uh, closer to correct. But, um, but, but, you know, he was, he was one that was, was tough. And I, and I, I'm a big Pittsburgh Steelers fan. So I feel that one every single Sunday when I turn on the television, because uh, I'm rooting for him now, but I wish I had gotten that one right. Uh, in terms of, you know, the ones that we've gotten right, there's been a lot of them, you know, a lot of top recruits, have turned out i'm most proud of the ones where because there's competing websites that do this where we were the only ones who were out there on a guy like a Devonte parker who was a first round pick um when i was at scout we were the only ones that had him as a four-star darren lee was a first round pick who we, we were the only ones that had him as a four-star tyler linderbaum who's going to go in the first round in this draft he was really kind of in a, a you know he's from iowa only had iowa and iowa state looking at him we you know, invited him to our All-American Bowl and rated him as a pretty high four-star, even though he really didn't have a whole lot of schools looking at him. That's the one in this upcoming draft that I think I feel most proud about was Tyler Linderbaum. Oh, the uh, center from Iowa. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't really a big-time recruit, and, and we liked him. We identified that one. And um, like I say, we, we, we are selection partners for the All-American Bowl in Texas, and we invited him down there and rated him pretty highly. Ah. One thing about uh, high school football is, and you talk about the access, is the fact that a lot of these games now are on ESPN and uh, a lot of networks. But one one team that seemed to slip through the cracks was Bishop Sycamore, which was a team which a fake high school and and, and now going to be the, uh, apparently the subject of many documentaries. What Alan? What is your reaction to when something like that happens? Well, it's extremely unfortunate because I actually knew some of the kids who were on that team. And had covered them previous when they were at other schools. And the kids are real kids. They're legitimate. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. and some of those guys were really good players. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think some people wondered who, who are these kids that are out, out there on the field. They had several guys who were talented enough to play at the major college level where this has now damaged uh, the reputation to where I don't know if those guys are going to end up playing anywhere. And actually, Bishop Sycamore uh, achieved probably the most prominence because they got themselves on ESPN. But their story, it's happened in other places. There's other of, of these right. kind of prep school, charter schools that are popping up in other places where, you know, I've heard some other stories about this happening to kids. And it's extremely unfortunate because these kids are at the moment, they kind of took advantage of some of the desperation that these kids had. Right. COVID-19 shut down recruiting camps for a long time. In some of the states right. that I covered, like Illinois, they didn't even play a fall season um, two years ago. They had to wait until the spring. And so kids really didn't know where to turn to in order to get recruited. And they really took advantage of that situation. So extremely unfortunate. And like, and like cause like I said, um, you know, I think there was maybe some misconception about who the kids were on that team. They had some real actual college prospects on that roster. Mm -hmm. And now also the fact too, as you, as you mentioned, this is the tip. It, they just happen to get on TV. There's other programs that unfortunately, as you mentioned, prey on the, on kids who are wanting to get to the next level and hoping to to find themselves in college, how 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 does how does how does it get prevented? How do we stop things like this? 
Yeah, it just happened too with a recruiting service. There was a recruiting service that was charging parents to help, you know, get their son um, re recruited. And I think that uh, parents and student athletes need to just be aware that if it, it sounds too good, then it probably is. You know, if somebody's offering to kind of wave a magic wand for you and get you recruited, or, you know, there's this magical prep school that you can go to to help you. And you really got to research that from all angles. I think like, these kids are so, you know, this, they have such big dreams. This is a lot of them. It's their dream. It's their way to get an education. It's their way to go to college. And so they're so excited when these opportunities come up that maybe they don't thoroughly look at who's running the organizations or, or look into them. And so before you pay anybody um, anything, make sure you research it. And most of the time you can get recruited for free. Most of the top recruits that we cover they don't, they, their high school coach helps them. They have trainers who help them. Um, even, you know, websites like ours or other recruiting services can help them. And, and a lot of them don't charge the student athlete anything. You should be able to get, if you're a good player, you should be able to get recruited without needing to pay anybody anything. One thing about the, oh, sorry about that, Ken, my apologies there. One thing about, you know, the, the recruiting uh, in both college football and basketball, uh, the game changer has been the NIL, name, image, and liking where players are now eligible to get uh, pay, uh, you know, with the uh, sponsors and uh, commercialize themselves. Um, I wanted to know how much did, did that impacted the, uh, the recruiting game and where does Big Ten stand in comparison to other uh, Power Five schools like Pac-12, Pac SEC, among others? Yeah, so it has already made a big impact. You know, it's still pretty new. So I think we're all still figuring out exactly how much impact it'll have and which ways it will impact recruiting. But there's no question that it's had an impact. I mean, just today, you're asking this question at a great time. Tennessee uh, got a five-star quarterback who I think has has agreed to a very large NIL deal. And, uh, and, and last year, when you saw on National Signing Day, Jackson State, Deion Sanders signed the number one recruit in the country. That doesn't happen without NIL. That doesn't even come close to happening, I don't think, without mm -hmm. NIL. Now, you know, we talk to the high school student athletes all the time. I was just at a recruiting camp over the weekend. They all bring it up, you know, when they go visit a school. It used to just be you watch a practice, you talk to the coaches, you talk to some academic people. Now they say we've talked to the NIL people as well. Schools have staff members who are assigned to show them what they can help them with in order to take advantage of NIL. It's now a very big part of the recruiting process. And and, you know, it's varying levels for varying kids like this five star quarterback stands to make millions off of NIL for most of the recruits. We're not talking millions. We're talking about, you know, maybe you partner with your local credit union and you get some pocket money, that kind of thing. Right. So so there's there's all different levels to this. But there's no question that um, these top recruits, when they're going on these visits now and they're picking their schools, that that's a part of their decision. Uh, and a bigger part of it than even I anticipated it being. Mm -hmm. Where do you see it coming down, though? Did, did, do you see this calming down at all? Or are we right now basically in a wild, wild west situation with NIL? You know, I think that they're in, in I would think that they're going to have to at least talk about regulating some of it. Um, but I don't know that, that that's going to work, you know, because we this was this has been a long time coming um, and it started with the video games and they've gone through they've gone through a pretty big process to get to where it is now so i don't know if you know i don't know all the ins and outs legally 
but I would imagine it would be pretty hard to reverse something like this. So maybe you can regulate it somehow. But I also think that if you're a high school student athlete and you've put yourself in the position to where somebody's willing to give you $8 million to endorse something or to be part of their whatever it is that what the agreement is, then uh, then maybe you deserve that. So it's, I think it's possible that it'll just stay the way it is. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you covering, you know, college football as an Asian American person. You know, we had Mikey Chen, you know, when we started our show, for, who covers the Irish, uh, fighting Irish for the Irish Wire. Um, there are many uh, Asian Americans obviously playing in, in college football or much less in the NFL. And I wanted to kind of uh, ask you, you know, when you started as a very, very young age to where you are now. And uh, obviously, the kind of experience and maybe, you know, the the, the, the pushback you might have gotten because uh, you are an Asian American and, you know, where we are as a society today. Sure. And when I started, it was that, that was very unusual, um, especially within recruiting. There was there were Asian Americans in sports media. Um, and there are Asian Americans, there's starting to be more Asian Americans involved in football. But when I was growing up, it was pretty much like I'd turn on the TV and I'd go, okay, I root for Norm Chow <laughs> and then and maybe not, right. not many others, right? Um, I can't sit here though and say that I, it had a huge effect. I don't really feel like I, I didn't really experience too much discrimination or anything like that. I, um, maybe a comment here and there throughout the course or people saying, hey, you're kind of not what I expected. Um, my company, the company that I was hired by Scout first, and that's now what merged into 24-7, I, I have to really thank them because I was nothing like any of their other recruiting analysts from my age to my demographic. I was a 19-year-old, you know, Asian college student who they, they put in a position that, you know, everybody else was much older and more experienced than me. So I really have to thank them for looking past a lot of that. Um, I knew going in that I was different. I wasn't what everybody was going to expect. And I did kind of carry that with me when I went out on the road. I did, did want to do as good of a job as possible uh, because I, I knew that there were probably some preconceived notions about me. I did play football growing up. I still get the question though, because I don't, I don't really look like a football player. People go, oh, you do your job. You didn't play, right? You know, and, and so I, I got those questions a lot. And so it, it always just I, I never, like I said, I, I never felt like it was a hindrance, but it was definitely something that motivated me. Mm -hmm. uh, we're speaking with Alan True of 24-7 Sports. You see the you, you see the slide behind him uh, there uh, endorsing 24-7 Sports. Uh, Alan, what has it like been working for 24-7 Sports and to have that huge CBS network behind you? So when you tell them where you are, uh, when you tell kids or you tell parents or you tell uh, coaches about what you're doing, they instantly know and have that uh, uh, recognition of, of, of who you work for. Yeah. So in, in the past, we've had some other big parent companies, too. But CBS is definitely the best that we've worked with. And it's from every level, even some of the things that we've talked about, you know, during the pandemic and when there were when there was uh, violence against Asian Americans, they had town hall meetings, they had Zoom meetings that we could participate in. Like from every aspect of this company, from the support we get to, like I mentioned, some of the resources that allow us to travel or um, to be able to pay for streaming services to watch these games, they are extremely supportive and um, really have have are they're incredible to work for. So not only the name recognition, but just the type of company they are. But there's no question that yeah, when I when I used to go to games. 
high school games and I would say, hey, I'm, I'm with Scout. I'm here to watch the game. There were times where they would say, well, you guys aren't a real media organization. You have to buy a ticket to get in. Uh, that happened in the past. That doesn't doesn't happen anymore. And that's uh, definitely one of the big bonuses of the name recognition, but also the recruiting industry getting bigger. Let's ask you um, the top incoming freshmen in the uh, the Big Ten since we're in Chicago, where Big Ten is uh, you know located. Who is the uh, the top incoming freshman in the Big Ten, uh, in your opinion, that we should yeah. keep an eye out in, in the upcoming college football season? Yeah. So the one that we went with, and it's maybe uh, we're we're kind of off the beaten path of some of the other services. We really like this quarterback, Drew Allard, that's going to Penn State. He's from Ohio, uh, big time guy. You know, six foot five, two hundred and thirty pounds, can move. We've compared him to Josh Allen. He's already on campus. These kids, that's something different now too. These kids can enroll mid year and start school really a semester early. So he's doing that. He's getting a jump on it. Since I've covered Penn State, they've had some some really great players. They've had the, you know, Micah Parsons and the Saquon Barkley's of the world. They haven't had a five-star quarterback since James Franklin has been there. So I think he has a chance to, to really kind of shift things for Penn State if he turns out to be what we all think he can be. Um, let's talk about, let's see, what about Michigan and Ohio State? Are there any good ones uh, that we should keep an eye out on? Yeah, so Ohio State had a really, really good class, um, and they're and they're really good class defensively. You know, I think the guy to look out there for that I've covered is C.J. Hicks, linebacker, um, very athletic guy. I think he has a chance to play right away. They're losing some players in that position. I think he has a chance to come in and make an immediate impact. Michigan, if you're a Michigan fan, they've one of the frustrations for them has been that they've. Um, they, they haven't been very as big on the defensive line. They've had great players outside like David Ojabo and Aiden Hutchinson. They've got a couple of, you know, 300 plus pound guys coming on in on the interior, Kenneth Grant and Mason Graham, Will Johnson, a defensive back from Detroit that I've covered was the top player in that class five-star cornerback. I think he's another one to watch out for also. And uh, since we're, uh, you know, Chicago-based network, we have to ask about Illinois and Northwestern. Obviously, two teams that have somewhat struggled in uh, recent years. Obviously, Northwestern had more more of a success um, going to the uh, Big Ten championship two years ago. Where's the uh, current state of the both programs, in your opinion? And, uh, and you know, can they make any uh, significant progress going forward? Yeah. So first with uh, Illinois, you know, I think with Brett Bielema, they have done a, I, th I think I've, they've done a noticeably better job in recruiting and they've done it at home. That was one of the big complaints about Lovey Smith was that right. uh, the high school coaches felt like he didn't recruit in Illinois enough. I think it was maybe two or three years ago. They didn't sign a single player from the state of Illinois. And I think they had 11 a year ago under Brett Bielema. And you can see that again in this class. So I think he's targeting the same kind of kids that he did at Wisconsin. Um, not necessarily the top household names, but guys that they can develop, guys with certain body types and traits. And I think having that experience from Wisconsin where they always, Wisconsin honestly was one of the schools when he was there, they had a bunch of TJ Watts, guys that made the recruiting rankings honestly look bad. And I think they're, they're using that blueprint again at Illinois of, of focusing on body types that they can develop. Northwestern, you know, they've they just have to try to sustain the success. They've had some great years and then some down years. You know, they're in the Big Ten championship game and then they have a down year and then they're in the Big Ten championship game. and Then they have a down year. I think they just have to find a way 
to sustain that. But uh, I, I think high school recruits are getting a lot smarter about the way they go about recruiting. You know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, the kids all picked the biggest logos. It was Miami and USC, I think, at the time. Now kids understand that they have to make decisions beyond just football. And Northwestern offers great academics. They offers a beautiful campus and beautiful facilities. And they have a coaching staff there in Pat Fitzgerald where you don't really, that's a worry for kids when they pick a school and maybe the coach leaves. Well, Pat Fitzgerald is, is coaching at his alma mater. He turns down NFL offers every year. I think you can feel pretty safe that if you're a high school recruit and you pick Northwestern, Pat Fitzgerald is going to be your coach. And I don't know that you can say that about a ton of other programs. We're speaking with Alan True from 24-7 Sports, talking about Midwest football recruiting. Let's talk about that big elephant in the room that's always in the Midwest and always a big uh, has a big Chicago fan base, and that is Notre Dame. How do you think they're doing? Notre Dame, we just talked about it today. Notre Dame has a chance to have the number one recruiting class in the country this year, which is pretty incredible, right, when you consider some of the staff changes, um, Brian Kelly leaving, but they've had their share of success. They've been – college football playoffs. They put a lot of players in the pros and they also have a really nice campus and academics to offer. So there's a whole lot of things there at Notre Dame. And Marcus Freeman is a really personable young coach that I think the recruits have really connected with. Part Asian, by the way, Marcus <laughs> Yes, exactly. We'll very much right. claim him. Yes. Yeah, I, I a part Asian, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I will claim him uh, even more when they have the number one recruiting class. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's doing a great job so far. The kids who go there are, are have been raving about not just him, but their whole staff. And uh, so then the last piece of the puzzle is you know, they got to go win some games this fall and show that you know there's no drop off with the coaching change. But so far in recruiting, they are doing about as well as you can expect in this class and still some some big fish out there, um, five-star quarterback Dante Moore from Detroit, a guy who I cover very closely. I think uh, he's he's one of the big guys they're still going after, and they're in good shape with them right now. And who do you think has the top uh, recruiting class uh, in the nation thus far? Sorry, man. I'm sorry. I think you guys both I, – I couldn't hear the question. My, my apologies. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, so – and who do you think is the uh, – so far, which college and which school has the, uh, the, the top recruiting class in the nation thus far? You know what? Off the top of my head, I don't even know. You think I should know that? But we they <laughs> changes so much between now and next. Like I don't like people are going to like oh we, you know we have the number one recruiting class right now. Well, I think every year there's some odd school that has the number one recruiting class in March or has a top ten class in March, and it changes so much by February that I honestly don't even look at it. But the usual <laughs> suspects will be Notre Dame's competition: Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama. You can always feel pretty safe that those schools are going to be in that top 10 somewhere. So I, I think those will be the schools that battle it out. Penn State and Michigan sometimes, you know, get into that national top 10 as well. We're speaking with Alan Trio from 24 uh, seven sports. Um, before we let you go, uh, Alan, we wanted to uh, ask you, do you have any advice for any high schoolers or any parents who has, you know, um, you know, young athletes who are aspiring to be recruited by, you know, top uh, college programs? And uh, what kind of advice do you have for them going forward in order to be, you know, maybe discovered by you or any anybody else? Sure. So my the first thing is to focus on being the best athlete and the best student that you can be first and then focus on getting recruited. Sometimes kids... I think jump the gun a little bit and they want to be recruited so badly that they don't take care of all of the pieces 
get recruited. So people always ask me, what's the first step to getting recruited? Well, and, and, and people laugh when I say this, but the first step is you have to be good at football. And sometimes people forget that step that they think, you know, you have to be as good of a player. It takes, you have to be really, really talented, honestly, to even get recruited at the division three level. So, so do that first um, and then go to the right places, go to some college camps, uh, get in front of college coaches, send your film out, and get a gauge for where you stand. If you've played against somebody who's been recruited or you've played with on your own team, you know, get a gauge for maybe what that person has that, that you don't have or things you need to improve in order to get there. Um, and then from there, you know, I, I also think uh, some great advice for me, I always say, don't necessarily look at the internet and the recruiting sites, even on my own at 24 seven sports, because we cover pretty much the top of the mountain. And there's a lot of kids who go to college for free to play football or go to college to play football at the division two II and division three levels and the NAIA levels who have great careers, have get great educations, and have great experiences in college that a word never gets written about them on the Internet. So when you, you look at 24 seven every day, I know some kids look at it and they go, man, I, I'm not getting what these guys are getting. Understand that what we're covering is really like the top five to 10 percentile. And there's a ton of kids out there who are going to get recruited and go to college and play football that that don't get written about. So don't get tricked um, by looking only at the recruiting sites. There's a whole other world of recruiting out there. Very good advice from Alan True. Let's bring in our producer extraordinaire, Aldo Gandia. He has a question for you, Alan. All hey, right. Alan. Great job. Um, just want to know uh, which Illinois high schools produce the best talent. So if I, my, I'm, I'm about to have a grandson. So in about 15, 16 years, <laughs> I want to send him to the best high school for, for football. If he wants to play football. <laughs> All right. So what, what part of, are you, are you right in Chicago? Or are you in a suburb? Chicago, North suburbs, Arlington Heights. Okay, so you know, there's some good schools up there. Loyola Academy has uh, really, really good football, um, and and as evidenced by the fact that they've had, I think, I think Pat Fitzgerald's kids might go there, and uh, Olin Krutz, who played for the Bears, his sons oh, went right. there, yeah, and got recruited. So you know, it's pretty good, pretty good when when those kind of guys are sending their sons there. Uh, Maine South, um, very famous for for having good football. They produce a lot of talent. Within the city, I think the Catholic schools do a really good job. The Nazareth Academy, Brother Rice, the St. Rita's, you hear about those all the time. One public school that's doing a great job is Kenwood Academy. People might not know that one as much. They're kind of new to the scene, got a new coach a couple of years ago, and they are, they are um, you know, it's good to see, to me, a city school get recruited because a lot of the suburban schools or the Catholic schools get recruited. The city schools don't always get recruited as much. They've done a really nice job there, although that's, Ge geography wise, you would be sending them way south. So maybe. Uh... <laughs> That's great. Thank you for uh, letting me know that. I'll tell my daughter uh, that little Aldo, although she doesn't <laughs> want to name him, Aldo, <laughs> little Aldo will be going to one of those schools. Great. <laughs> if I'm still, if I'm still doing this in 15, 16 years, you can email me as huddle link or whatever it is. By then. Maybe, I'll, maybe it'll be like a hologram or something by that point. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Aldo. Um, Thank one you, other Aldo. thing, though, if we had to, everyone, every state in Friday Night Lights talks about their their state being the hotbed of high school football. But, Alan, if you had to choose that hotbed, what would it be? It's a good question. Ohio in the Midwest is traditionally 
that. I think Michigan and some of the other states have caught up. Uh, if we're talking about the whole country, though, I, mean, I don't think there's anything quite like Texas high school football. Yeah. I mean, there, you go down there and you see some of those high school stadiums and the weight rooms. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's better than some of the small colleges up here. Um, and you look at some of the salaries of the high school coaches down there and then just how much the the towns get be rallied behind high school football in Texas. Uh, I, I love our football up here in the north. I'm a northerner through and through. But if I'm being uh, fully fair here, I think that uh, Texas has to be the one. Yeah, Absolutely. I can vouch for that as somebody who lived there uh, for a couple of years and expected to be moved moving there again in the summer for work. Um, I lived in uh, you know outside of Dallas, uh, Allen Eagles, which is uh, one of the top high schools in the country. You know, Kyler Murray is one of the most famous alumni there. Their stadium is incredible; holds about fifteen, sixteen thousand on a good Friday night games. Um, I'm actually going to move there and uh, I'm probably, if I can't get tickets, maybe I'm probably going to go there and see the experience, what it's all about. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on, uh, Alan, on short notice. I, I, I hope uh, we treated you very, very well. And uh, we definitely would love to have you again uh, at, at uh, some other capacities and, uh, you know, hopefully with more time. And uh, we look forward to having you. Good luck to you in, in uh, 24-7 and uh, continue success. Oh, I appreciate that, guys. Appreciate you having me on. And, you know, if all those grandson turns out to be, maybe he can send him to live with you and he can play for the <laughs> Allen Eagles. So, hey, that's my last, that's my parting shot. That's my idea for you as I'm leaving. Alan, thank you, thank Alan. you so much. And uh, we'll you. talk to you soon. Thanks. Alan True of 24-7 Sports and talking about uh, Midwest football recruiting because this is a Midwest show. Why not? Uh, yeah. Coming up next. We, we're going to bring in Jonah Jovad of WFAA in the wonderful city of Dallas, where uh, Stephen may be moving very soon. He just gave, he just gave you a little uh, preview of that. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. coming up next as we continue on the AA team on the Barroom Network. The past year has seen a 1,900% rise in anti-Asian hate crime in New York City alone. With 2,800 incidents reported across 47 states in Washington, D.C., this is a national crisis, and we need your help to call it out. Call it a crime. Call it what it is, racism. Let's stand up together against hate. Learn more at StopAAPIHate.org. Some fantastic stuff in our last segment, talking uh, talking with Alan True of 24-7 Sports, talking about uh, Midwest football recruiting. You got uh, some very interesting insight uh, on some of the incoming freshmen coming into the Big Ten. So uh, that's that's uh, some, some great stuff there, Stephen. Yeah, terrific insight to the uh, college uh, recruiting uh, world uh, that, that Alan can offer. You know, it's a it's a grind. It's a, you know, it's kind of like being a scout for college football. Uh, that uh, you know, that all all of us are really really you know reading, you know, twenty four seven literally, uh, no pun intended there. But um, you know, I live in uh, Columbus uh, area. You know, where Ohio State obviously, a home of Ohio State, and uh, you know, people talk about college recruiting even at, at this time of the year. You know, in February and March. So that's how, you know, important the, uh, you know, the lifeline of uh, college football now. And, 
uh, it's an interesting insight to his world. And one thing that Alan noted that the hotbed of high school football is Texas. So that is a very good transition to bring in our next guest, Jonah Javid of WFAA in the beautiful city of Dallas. Uh, he is our next guest. And uh, Stephen, now tell us a little bit about him. So as uh, somebody who lived in Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, you know, I came about the same time, I believe, Jonah Javad, by the way, uh, joined mm -hmm. WFAA. Uh, probably in the early 2018. So I was only a few months uh, after I moved to uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, and I started watching, you know, uh, WFAA sports because of the uh, the great Dale Hansen, who is uh, now retired. Um, and then, uh, you know, I started following uh, him and others on that channel more so than any other local channels. Um, although I believe uh, there is a link uh, that I sent to you about uh, his one of his uh, recent works, if you don't mind playing. Uh... Good, better, Ryan. Better, Ryan. At first glance, the Coppell boys basketball team, My whole team, we've won three district championships in the last four years, looks like any other. What's the difference between me and you? But look closer and you'll find. It's special. It's a special team. You, you don't really see a team like this anywhere else. Coppell's roster is a poster for diversity. Dave Crane, Noel Burhi, Alex Tung, Arhan Lapsiwala, Nas Brown, Ryan Argwal. Seven players are the sons of immigrants. Five from India, one from Eritrea, and one from China. I think by far we're the most diverse team in Texas, for sure. We're probably one of the only teams in like the country that has five Indians on the team. Two of those five are longtime friends, Devon Rain and Stanford commit Ryan Argawal. Our parents have known each other since before we were born. So like we have pictures together from like one month old. It's been really fun. Like you just learn a lot more about other people. You learn what other people go through. You know, I know a couple guys on the team have been called certain slurs and stuff because of their race and stuff. But it's like at the end of the day, they know that they have teammates that are going through it. And if we can all fight through it, then they can fight through it. I'm Asian, right? You don't really see many uh, Asians playing basketball, so you got to represent. I share, like, my music and stuff with them. I put them on new stuff like that, and they'll, like, teach me about their culture, like, their foods and everything. So it's not hard, you know, especially with guys like this that are, like, they just uh, want to let you in, and they're friendly and they're good people. Nas Brown is the only member of the starting lineup with both parents from the United States. But I mean, when you have, like, the respect that we all have for each other... Like, getting to know each other's culture, like, we can all coexist, you know, we can all succeed like we all do on our team. No matter your skin tone, your background, it doesn't matter where you come from. I think the pride instills in me is, is not that they see each other for their differences, but it's how much they embrace the uniqueness that each one brings to the table. This story hits home for me, too, because I also am the son of an immigrant, and we hope it's a reflection of a world that we can all live in one day soon. In Coppell, I'm Jonah Javad. And let's bring Jonah in right now. That that report, fantastic. That's network quality right there. Jonah, yes, thanks sir. for joining us today, and uh, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, that story is actually funny. The uh, the background to it is I was uh, filming highlights of a uh, Coppell boys basketball game earlier this year, and I'm just looking at at their roster, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. I, like, I had <laughs> never seen anything like it. Um, you know, typically, depending on the neighborhoods, it's, you know, mostly – a white or a black team. And sometimes you'll have, you know, various minorities, but this one was just, it was everyone. Um, it was really cool. And what I loved about it was like what you saw in the story there, um, how much they've learned from each other at such a young age about uh, everyone's kind of uniqueness and uh, kind of bonding through 
um, through that. So um, thanks for sharing that story. I, I appreciate that. No problem. You know, as somebody uh, who lived in that uh, area, you know, I lived in Plano and Frisco and, um, you know, I'm actually getting transferred again back to that area in the summer. Um, I'm really, really excited about going back there. And, uh, you know, I work with a lot of Indians, obviously working in the, uh, the tech world. Uh, that area is very, very diversified, as you can probably remember, uh, as you know. So it's not really, really surprising. Uh, that area is so diverse, but I'm really, really surprised that there were actually, you know, uh, you know, a gentleman from Hong Kong and Indian uh, playing basketball in, in, you know, in Coppell or anywhere else else in Texas, uh, much less. Yeah, Coppell as a, as a city in Texas, it's it's one of the more diverse melting pot cities, I, I would think, in in the greater, you know, outside after you get outside of Dallas, obviously, which is you know probably king to diversity. Um, you know, Richardson's starting to grow and, it, and Richardson's got a really right. diverse um, background, people from a lot of different cultures as well. Um, but Coppell, yeah, it's, I think it's because of the schools and, um, you know, people are drawn to that if they're moving here from other places. And, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of blossomed into that, um, you know, and a very unique environment for sure. What was the reaction to the story when, when the first aired? I mean, I, I, I was really that's the first time I saw it uh, tonight, Jonah. Uh, I was very touched by it, very moved by it. What was the reaction from the viewing public by that? Yeah, it was it was the same. Um, you know, I don't think you could see that story and uh, and not, you know, feel slightly moved by it. Right. Or, you know, you know, somebody who's the, you know, the son or a child of an immigrant. Um you know, it kind of hits home for a lot of people, I would think, um, just because of where we're at now culturally. It's, you know, native Texans. And then you've got, you know, it's a whole melting pot, right, of, of people from different backgrounds. So, uh, no, thankfully, it was very positive. And if it wasn't, then it says more about them than it does anybody right. else. Right. Exactly. So, um, exactly. you know, it, was, it was really cool. And, uh, you know, the Dallas Mavericks play by play broadcaster, Mark Folliwell, um, tweeted it out and uh, was very complimentary about it. Saw him privately, you know, the other day, and he was, uh, you know, very happy about that story as well. And so, you know, we, we just, for, for those who don't know, I mean, that's kind of the stories I type, I try to find, right, is, uh, you know, things, human interest, but it's more on a, you know, a, a level up, um, so to speak. And it's only a story that, uh, you know, as you mentioned in your broadcast, uh, you can cover because of your, um, a background uh, of being a Persian reporter, you know, uh, one other Persian reporter that I think uh, a lot of us, uh, you know, within the network are familiar with is uh, Leah Rahimi, who is the, uh, you know, NBC Chicago formerly, I'm sorry, she works at the uh, NBC Chicago, also works at the 670 to score for a lot of us Chicago fans that are familiar with. Uh, tell us about your uh, background. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty common uh, Persian background, uh, you know, first, what is it? First generation. Um, it's funny you mentioned Layla. Layla is actually a friend because shockingly, the Persian American community is not all that large when it comes to, when it comes to media. So, you know, right. she used to work to, there in the uh, market as well. You know, she did. I didn't know. I was, I had an, just attended there. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't arrived yet, but she, um, yeah. she used to work with some friends of mine. I think it was in Austin or something like that. So, I've um I've kind of you know followed her and we we finally met a couple of years ago. Very nice. Glad she's uh, doing well in Chicago. Um, but my background it's it's pretty common. My dad moved here from Iran uh, around the time of the revolution. Um, mm -hmm. 
went to college at, uh, at Georgetown and just kind of figured it out, you know, how to figure out life kind of just uh, away from home. Um, and so I uh, ended up meeting my mom at, in law school in, in uh, just outside of Boston. And that's where I grew up, spent first 18 years of my life uh, growing up outside of Boston, and then um, went to school at the University of Missouri, got a great job out of school uh, covering the, the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres for the NBC station in Buffalo, WGRZ TV. Five and a half years there, and then uh, fortunate to get the opportunity here at WFAA in Dallas, uh, working you know working for Dale Hansen, what was it for four years, and uh, our incredible team, um, top notch storytelling reporters, everything. I, you know, if you know WFAA and what they stand for, so it's very uh, very fortunate, fortuitous, and um, for for Persian Americans like myself, or at least ones that work in media, it's been, it's kind of a very common story you hear is, you know, they move here around the late seventies, find a place to live. It could use a lot of LA Persian. A lot of Persians are in LA. Some are in Houston, um, other parts of Texas, and then a lot of them on the East coast as well. So, um, I happen to be one of the East coasters and have now migrated my way to Texas. You know, you've grown up in three, uh, you worked or grown up or either now worked in three sport hotbeds, uh, Boston, um, I'm in Rhode Island, so I know that area very well. Um, going to Western New York, where I think the Bills are a religion. Um, and now you're in <laughs> Dallas, where we, we talk about high school football. And, of course, you're working where the Dallas Cowboys are, are 24-7, probably a 48-14 beat. Well, um, well, hold up, Ken. Are you saying that the University of Missouri is not a hotbed for sports? I don't believe my, <laughs> I don't believe my ears. Powerhouse program. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, we can't forget about the journalism, <laughs> uh, the journalism uh, gr grads that have come out of the university of Missouri. So thank, thank my you. apologies. Some love, <laughs> some love for, for Mizzou because it's definitely not showing up uh, athletically lately, but um, yeah, it's, it's been crazy um, to kind of see the uh, sports from different towns. I mean, obviously growing up in Boston, it's, it's madhouse, right. And, and radio is sports radio is massive and fans are, are nuts. And then going to Buffalo, I thought I had, you know, kind of seen what fandom was like. And then you cover the bills for six years and you see them end the playoff drought. That was my last, my last, uh, fall there was them finally ending that 17 year playoff drought. And it was incredible. I mean, you're seeing fans lined up outside at the airport, uh, to welcome them back you know, after losing in the playoffs. I mean, it's just, um, it is a religion is very much how I would put it. Some people like to call the bills, the college football team of Buffalo, because it is very much kind of like that Alabama, yeah. um, LSU type of feel when you go uh, a lot of grass lots. It's, it's, it feels very vintage and not uh, watered down, you know, like throwing a stadium downtown and, you know, just kind of a parking lot party. It's, it's very cool. Um, and that, I, that experience is, I'm really grateful for it because when I first got the job there, uh, I was just hyped to cover NFL and NHL. I mean, I was a 20, barely 22 years old when I started and Lord knows I made a lot of mistakes my, during my early years there, just cause I had to kind of figure it out as I went. And, um, you know, I didn't have the luxury of doing that in market 180 where maybe people wouldn't see it. So a lot of my mistakes got put on blast and that rightfully so it, was, it helped me kind of grow up and mature. Um, but I, I, I'm so grateful for the experience to cover those teams in that market just because of what it, it 
I, I wish every young reporter could go do that because you see what it's like to cover teams where the fans know more than some reporters. I mean, it is, it was crazy. I, I was like, there's no way these fans are as educated or informed as somebody works. At. Nope. Nope. There are some that are probably more informed and smart about thing, the things going on than, than reporters covering the team. So um, that was an incredible educational experience for me. And then, yeah, I mean, I got to Dallas and it's been a, an adjustment just because, you know, people take their sports a little differently and there's just so many options here sure. um, and people from way all over the place. Um, you know, there's families move here. They don't necessarily care about the Cowboys or care about, you know, that, that team or this team. And so it's, it, it's great because there's so much to cover, but it's tough because there's not like a bills where everybody only cares about that team. Um, so it is, you know, it's kind of a give and take when it comes to uh, a content perspective. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with Jonah Javad of WFAA in Dallas. And one, one more question I'll ask you about Western New York. Of course, something about Western New York, of course, it, 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 you have not only just you have the big market feel of, with the bills, but also it's a, a little bit of a small market and uh, community feel. It, it, it's, it's like also covering the media there is like a, a, a is his own beat because you have Alan Pergament of the Buffalo News covering everything like that. Did, did, did you happen to be a, a, be a subject of any of, of his articles when, he, when you were there? I, I joke that I kept Alan Pergamon employed uh, for, <laughs> for five and a half years. I mean, it was like every week he was writing something. Sometimes some, some things were fair. Some things I still stand by that, that weren't, but that's okay. Um, but, you know, it's, um, yeah, Pergamon used to write a lot about us. But to his credit, he also wrote a very nice feature about me and my now wife. Um, as we were leaving Buffalo because, you know, okay. it's, it was a very, it was like a love, it was like a growing up love story is how I would call it because, you know, her and I both moved there when we were 22 and kind of grew, you know, grew up there during our twenties and then, um, you know, ended up leaving and, you know, but we still, you know, have, have a, a soft spot for Buffalo and still call it home in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, to answer your question, yes, old Perg, um, <laughs> He, he owes me some uh, some commission checks. That's for dang sure. So he's a media critic in uh, with the Buffalo News. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, if you Googled my name for from like 2012 to 2018, ah. it was just nothing but like Jonah Javad did this. Um, I'm like, thanks. You know, appreciate the publicity. I stand by what I said. So I see. Um, but yeah, no, it was. But that was part of. That's what I mean by it was part of the growing up process is uh, being able to take criticism, receive it and not be mad or annoyed. And, you know, you could disagree with it, but right. what I loved and I still, I, I maintain this to this day is I'm glad we had somebody kind of patrolling like that because, mm. um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of self-awareness and logic and accountability. And, uh, you know, I'll be the first one to say if I screwed something up or I'm wrong or, um, or maybe that was in poor taste or classless, which, you know, I, said and did some stupid stuff my first couple of years there that probably crossed the line. And, uh, you know, it was good to have kind of a, you know, a watchman, so to speak, because, you know, that kind of criticism helped me grow and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, molded me into, okay, I can push the boundaries in certain places, but what is too far? Um, and typically 22, 23, 24 year olds don't have that kind of mentor, somebody nurturing that type of, process um you just kind of figure it out as you go so fortunately i didn't get fired during my time there that would have been, that would have been sad right 
So for those of us uh, in Chicago, he's kind of like Alan Perkman's probably the equivalent of uh, Robert Feeder, who used to be the uh, the media critic with the Chicago Tribune, or in your neck of the woods, uh, you know, Jonah in DFW, formerly I guess uh, Ed Bark, also known as uh, Barky, uh, who used to be a media critic there. Uh, we got a, actually a question, somebody asking a good question, since you used to cover the Bills there, which was more important uh, hiring uh, of McDermott or drafting Allen, which is probably the catalyst. It's like, chick it's like chicken or the egg kind of question. Uh, <laughs> I All right. This would probably, I'm sure many people would disagree, but I would say McDermott um, just for the fact that he changed the entire culture there. And mm -hmm. I don't think they draft Josh Allen if McDermott doesn't become the head coach um, because McDermott and Brandon being the GM were a, were a package deal when they came in. Right. And that was my last year covering the bills. And I got to see firsthand, you know, they came in and cleaned house. I mean, they just got rid of bad contracts. They got rid of players that Rex Ryan had really liked and just weren't right. worth, you know, what they were doing. So they, and they made some trades that at the time were like, how are you trading that for that? The value wasn't there. And there were a lot of questions. Um, but the one thing that stood out was just how much they wanted to make. They wanted to put their own stamp on the, on that team. Um, it, you know, it'd been the first time Doug Whaley had finally been removed from that organization and Russ Brandon started to kind of distance himself a little bit. Um, just kind of an old regime of, of Bill's characters that had been there too long and, you know, fine, fine guys, I guess in their own right, but just weren't, doing the job necessary to get the bills over the hump. And so they bring him being a McDermott, turn the culture around. And um, I don't think that happens. If, you know, I don't think Josh Allen's a bill if, without all that. Um, so I'm kind of a, you know, an evolutionary kind of thought process guy. It's like, yeah, Josh Allen's great. And he's, you know, generational, right. But would Josh Allen be this good if they didn't get Stefan Diggs? That was kind of a huge move because, Allen's numbers before they got digs weren't that great. So they bring him in and right. he skyrockets. And so everything, like, especially in football, and I try to tell this to people because they're so knee jerk reaction, everything is intertwined. Like you can get a great quarterback. It doesn't mean anything if he doesn't have an offensive line, if he doesn't have some star receiver to draw double coverage. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Allen was great, but none of this happens without McDermott and mostly, especially Brandon Bean. Mm -hmm. We want to thank the uh, listener Adeptus uh, Serpentas for asking that great question. Uh, we'll transition to your life in DFW right now. You work for the legendary Dale Hansen, who retired last September, I believe. DFW has always been a hotbed for great sports media personalities. Uh, Skip Bayless, Kurt Menefee got his start at the, the ticket. Um, even the ones who are currently working there over there at the ticket, they all have 20 plus years of experience. None of them have left. Uh, you know, your friend Leah Rahimi worked there before, went to University of North Texas. Tim Kalashow still writes columns for the Dallas Morning News. You know, you, you mentioned your colleagues, Mike Leslie and Joe Trahan, who paid his dues and became the, uh, the successor and everybody do you feel like you sometimes, you know, with all due respect, kind of get lost in a shuffle being in such a hotbed of, uh, you know, people? And and I forgot to mention, WFAA used to be a place where Vern Lundquist uh, worked there as well. You know, that's not I, – I, I forgot there for some reason. You can't but, forget uh, Uncle Vern. Come on. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, what a dumbass I was there. But anyway, um, just wanted to know what is it like to work in the DFW and do you sometimes feel like the pressure of having to cover and break the news? Um, I think there's pressure with every role you have. Uh, just it's kind of it's market five, right? And it's only growing. Like I could see mm -hmm. this being top four, maybe even top three, 10 years from now, just in terms of, you know, uh, population. Um, no, I don't feel pressure more because I know my role. Um, you know, I don't think people turn to me necessarily to be some um, take creator. You know, I'm there was that whole wave of first take, right? And Stephen A and all these guys who have made millions off of just creating a stance on something, even though at, in their heart and their, in their mind, they don't feel that way. Or they create it just because they have to, you know, account for three hours of nonstop television. Um, I don't have to do that. So <laughs> I feel like when I say something, it means I believe it. I've thought about it a lot. I've watched what I'm talking about as opposed to just waking up, quick digesting something and then going and just, you know, word vomit for three hours and turning it into some hot take career. That's I'm all for commentary and I'm all for opinion. I'm all for, I'm, I'm cool with that, but it's gotta be well thought out. It's gotta be well presented. It's gotta be well written. It's gotta be insightful. Um, I'm not a big, just talk to talk guy. Um, as some people might, you know, realize I'm, you know, I'm not a, I, I'm just not into that. I'd I'm, I'm much more of a, writer author's mindset than I am, you know, barstool sports kind of thing. You know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. um, that's just my approach and I'm very much aware of that. And, um, I'll pick my spots if I feel like there's something I need you know, I want to talk about whether I've got massive clout in the city or not. I don't really care. Like I'll say it and that's fine. But when I got here, I, you know, I did a lot of commentary in Buffalo and, you know, built a strong brand of that because there wasn't a whole lot of it when I was there. Um, but when I got to Dallas, I didn't want to be the next Dale Hansen. I didn't want to be, um, you know, the next, next I don't, you want to move the needle, but I don't want to do it in a fake and phony way. Sure. Um, so what I found in, you know, what I excel at is storytelling. You know, let me go tell the stories of the people, um, you know, that are, are making waves, that are doing cool stuff, that are the most diverse basketball team in the state of Texas. Because uh, that's the stuff I care about. I mean, I, I if I have to insert myself into something, fine, I will. But I'd rather be just kind of a conduit of stories and of messages than to be the story. Um, but it, yeah, again, it's picking your spots, pressure, not really. I mean, it's local television. It's not, you know, I'm not giving the state of the union. It's, you know, <laughs> we've, we've we got a job to do. It's, and, sure. um, you know, I'm confident in it. And, I've got a great team. You know, it's, um, am I going to be your source for Cowboys breaking news? I'll try for Maz breaking news. I'll try, sure. but chances are you're going to get that from somewhere else or a national spot. And so let me give you the stuff you're not going to get from them. So that's kind of my thought. We're speaking with Jonah Javad of WFAN Dallas. And of course that was a station you mentioned Dale Hansen. That's where he worked and he was, he's a legend over there. What are some of the things that you learned from watching him? as you came over from Dallas, I mean, you say you're not going to try to be him. And of course, nobody can, nobody can be a wordsmith like he can when he would put out those great viral videos of commentaries. But what are the, some of the things that you learned from watching him over the years? Dale and I, for about four years, would just have a lot of conversations about our, um, 
just kind of our, a mindset and approach to what we do. It could be sports casting. It could be storytelling. The one thing that he and I have always overlapped on is, is writing and how paramount that is to everything. And it's really a lost art. The more and more content sites that come out and it's just, let me, how, let me just scroll through a million things, but you know, writing is just going by the wayside unless somebody's, you know, cares about it. So it's, it's become almost its own niche, unfortunately. But um, that was one thing that he emphasized and that, you know, that's really why I got hired. You know, he saw a story of mine in Buffalo when I sent my reel in and uh, the way I wrote it is how he said he would have written it. Um, and that was really uh, complimentary. And from his advice, it's, there's, there's too much to get to in, in this, in this segment. Um, but I will tell you that he and I still talk to this day. He and I still see each other to this day. We talk about the business. We talk about ways that we can, I can evolve and improve. And, um, you know, the way that the business has changed, like there will not be someone like that ever again, just because yeah. local TV will never be like that again. You know, the, the nineties, the early aughts, I mean, that's, those days have passed and he, you know, he'll be the first one to tell you he made a great career, but his Michael Sam commentary and then which then turned into the whole Dale unplugs um, is really what gave his career uh, second life and um, kind of connected him to the younger, the younger folks, the younger era, uh, people who don't really watch local TV, they, you know, could come up to him and recognize him because of something he said that went viral, you know, it's getting emails from all around the world. And I always found that to be really in incredible with him is that he never just settled on being a version of what he had to be and always was his authentic self. And I think that is whenever I talk to young journalists who are getting the broadcast or Stratcom or whatever, I'm just like, you just got to be yourself. Don't be something you're not. Um, and I know it sounds so cliche and so simple, but I watch all, I watch reels and tapes of people trying to be a version. Why? You know, people, people can spot, you know, spot that fake phony presentation from a mile away. And so, um, I've always really revered Dale for a lot of that and his, um, unapologetic way of doing things. Sadly, we have to apologize for, you know, the way we do things now. We don't, we're not 72 with a, uh, you know, that kind of bankroll and that kind of street cred. So, um, it's a little different. Um, but there's a lot of lessons and things he he's done and said and, you know, personal conversations with him over the years that still resonate. And I try to implement in my work every day. As you a former, uh, also, oh, go ahead, sorry, Ken. That's okay. You talked about writing to pictures and that's in lost art. Um, there's one person that you may have heard of when you're growing up in Boston is Bob Newmeyer, who, uh, who was on WBZ in Chicago, uh, WBZ in Boston. And they showed a report that he did about the Flutie, um, COSAR game in the University of Miami against Boston College, the Hail Mary game, and WBZ showed him writing the pictures. You mentioned it was a lost star, and I just listened, and I just watched that again just recently, and just amazed how important writing was, especially when you're doing that at what at the time was a three-minute, 50-second report. You don't get that nowadays. Uh, you're lucky if you get two minutes on a, on a local segment now, but talk about how about how how you feel about that is about writing and it's and it still it has still has to be important in, in tv news and especially television sports yeah absolutely it's and that's what's tough is that 
when you care so much about writing in something and you just see it slowly wither, it's hard. Like it's hard for me to see people not emphasize what I think is important. Um, and they, they go for the more gotcha stuff, the more headline driven stuff, the clickbait crap. Um, and I'm just, just not into it. And, you know, maybe it's, I really hope it's not like a highbrow thing, but just how is writing not important? You're right. Like you write everything. You write an Instagram post, a clever caption. That's really what it is, right? It's being clever. It's, you know, plays on words. It's double entendres. It's puns. It's just ways of presentation that are a little bit more thought evoking than just, you know, some stupid, um, you know, sentence, you know, just throw away words. Right. But, um, Writing was driven into me by some mentors of mine when I was in college and its importance and how to use it smartly and not in a way that is phony and over the top. You know, use writing succinctly and judiciously, but not just for the sake of flowering something up. Um, and that took time, right? Like you're a young journalist, you have no idea. I mean, you don't know part of my language. You don't know your ass from your elbow when you're first starting out anyway, but then you slowly start to find your voice and things, you know, take shape. And then, uh, you know, then you're off and running and you find what works for you, your voice and how you pre present things. And for me, I've always just been, I love bringing things full circle. You know, I'll start up something off the top, like a stand up comedian. And this is something Dale and I very much agree with. You have a line or something off the top, and then you weave the maze, you go through the labyrinth, and then you come back at the end and boom, you bring it full circle. Um, and I think it's just a way of, you know, kind of putting a period on something. And so that's something I always try to do with my writing. Could be a story, could be a commentary, could be written, like even a digital article or something. Um, but a point of finality and a callback, I think is very important to, uh, to writing. But I mean, man, make me an adjunct professor and I'll, I'll, I'll I could spend a semester teaching kids about writing. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Aldo, who just posted there, he's the producer and he used, he used to work many, many years at the uh, CBS Chicago in the uh, public television, uh, you know, commentary. And uh, uh, so Aldo speaks, has a tremendous uh, insight into you know obviously having worked in media for many many years before uh starting our network um we let's talk about the uh, the mavs and the cowboys both obviously making news on and off the field <laughs> um you know the cowboys have not had a very good off season in quite some time you know you know free agents losing and then the bombshell report about pr executive rich Dalrymple uh, being accused of peeping uh, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleader dress room. And then a few weeks later, um, the Dallas Mavericks, I believe this was last week, their former GM, Donnie Nelson, the son of uh, former uh, basketball legend Don Nelson, sued the Mavericks, claiming one of the Mar Mark Cuban's executives sexually assaulted his nephew. Um, obviously these types of stories keep you guys very, very busy, um, you know, in uh, DFW, but where do you see both of these stories, um, ending, you know, I know both stories, if I'm not mistaken, I know Cowboys settled with a bunch of cheerleaders, 
And then I read or heard on the ticket today that uh, the, the Mavericks also settled with the nephew, if I'm not mistaken. What, what is going on in DFW and how do you see these two stories, you know, with two owners, with two strong media personalities in Jerry Jones and, you know, Mark Cuban with the Shark Tank and among other things. How do you see these two franchises being in such a negative spotlight and how do you see these two franchises, uh, you know, handling these, uh, you know, off the field fiasco? Yeah, I think a lot of it will have to be settled in courts of law and, and settlements. And I honestly, I don't, I can't really get into all the legalities just because that wouldn't be, you know, earnest and honest. And I'm, I don't want to speak about something I don't have facts on or reports on. Mm-hmm. Um, but from, you know, outside, outside the box, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, right? Like it's, it's, um, and it's not the first time that these organizations are in the news for things that are not becoming you know it's it misconduct is obviously so prevalent right now and as it should be in terms of um coming to light and being publicized um and it's very hard you, you know you can't i don't want to you know, i can't say if anyone's guilty or not I, it's, that's again not for me to say but um accountability is a real issue in sports really it's it's a societal issue i would say people are very bad at saying if something is done is done wrong taking fault or saying we could have done something better um it's very much everyone's everyone wants to put a pr spin on something these days and uh you know just once i would love something to happen and then it's all right we'll hold a press conference we'll answer all your questions and that's it but when the thing with the former cowboys vp dropped um Jerry didn't talk, didn't right. do anything public. And you know, Jerry Jones, <laughs> that guy has never said no to a microphone in his entire life. So, I mean, right. he, it speaks volumes that he wouldn't do something, you know, wouldn't, you know, go to the podium and at least answer questions and settlement or not. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. Um, and the fact that the VP was unceremoniously departed, um, right. you know, he just, he quits and it, usually there would be some, long twitter post or statement or team issued something and there was nothing that kind of says a lot too sure so um you know you can only kind of read between the lines with a lot of this stuff but accountability is one thing i'd love some transparency but then again these organizations are all about how they mitigate you know these types of things you know the mavericks were in the news years ago you remember a handful of years ago for yeah. all of those allegations and so they bring in sent marshall and you know try to you know patch things up and then something like this gets reported mark cuban says it's lies but you know it's, again court the courts will handle that or a settlement or something um but it's yeah it's just unfortunate you know you don't want to you know ever see something like that and you know you feel for the people that are you know the having to come out and and make these things public just to get what they feel they're owed. So, um, sure. you know, it's, it's not just the Cowboys though. I mean, you see, obviously the Sean Watson deal, um, yeah. it's all over sports. And so it's really, how do we, as media has, how is fan, how is, how do fans react to something like that? I can't imagine being a Browns fan right now. Um, yeah. how do you, <laughs> I don't right. Like how, how do you, I don't know. I don't know how you make sense of it. And, yeah. I can't. 
can't, it's, just it's can't. tough. I mean, it's tough. So, mm -hmm. but again, it's in, Deshaun's not the first or the last and same sure. deal with the, you know, the Cowboys and the Mavericks. It's just unfortunate. It's all, it's the only word I can really use. Yeah. Exactly. Um, as someone who's uh, been in TV news and local news and still is, um, you're still having to see things evolve. Uh, we're seeing, th you know, whether it's the, the num the amount of time in a, in a, in a sports cast be reduced to a point where, you know, you just basically have to say hello and then goodbye in the segment. Um, <laughs> what is it like trying to come up with content for something you you've done? You showed, we showed the, uh, the segment that you did on the, on the diverse basketball team, uh, high school basketball team before at the beginning of this segment, but what is it like trying to come up with stories and content that can be hyper local, that can be, that can stand out uh, as opposed to stuff that's, that's out on, as you mentioned on the bar stools and the ESPNs. natural curiosity um knowing people who know stories getting you know it's taken me a while but i mean four years later now you know my address you know my contact list is expanded and you know i'm always like two degrees away from somebody i need to get in touch with which when you first move here is very hard um stories like i'll give you an example a couple of weeks ago so obviously what's going on in ukraine is horrible and it's you know, there's different ways to localize it, right? You know, Ukrainians in America and things people are do are doing to make them feel supported and, and loved. Um, there was a there are two WNBA basketball players who are from North Texas who were playing for a team in Ukraine all year, ended up leaving Ukraine for winter break. We're about to go back when this they get a, a notice from the embassy saying, Hey, there is a travel ban. You can't come to Ukraine. And so they end up meeting their team. I think it was in Bulgaria to, you know, play a couple of tournament games. And then they came back. Meanwhile, the rest of their team is Ukrainian and couldn't go back home while they had friends and family still there trying to take shelter, find safety. Um, you know, some of their teammates had children, five-year-olds in Ukraine and, couldn't know, didn't know how to get in touch with them when the war started out. So um, stories like that were, how can you find something that is national, global even, and then bring it back home with a local tie? I'm a big believer in great stories are great stories, and I'm at the point where it can have this much of a North Texas tie uh, sure. because people care about good stories or important stories. Um, not everything is going to be feel good, sure. but we try to find the ones that do make you feel better than the ones that are a little bit more raw um, and revealing. So, um, mm -hmm. no, it's a, it's a constant battle, but I mean, again, it's, it's people. We're telling stories of people more so than we're telling stories of pick and rolls and, and baseline screens and all this other stuff, you know, like, listen, I'm a, I'm a nerd. I'm a dork. I love hoops, <laughs> but I care about, I care about um, stories about people more than anything else. Cause that's where you get the emotion. That's where you get personality. Um, you know, you can go, you can do a commentary about the X's and O's and, you know, defensive line running a stunt here and whatever, who cares? Like how many people are, are going to truly care about that? It's a small fraction. And even then for a local TV audience, even smaller. So mm -hmm. find stories that affect communities, find stories that affect people, minorities, people that may look or sound, talk like you, sure. um, and not just stories about 
players, teams, athletes, which constantly change year to year anyway. And based on what we saw at the beginning of the, you know, uh, interview, you're an incredible storyteller and, uh, you know, um, we're, you know, I never, I never tire of hearing that. I just, <laughs> there was, there was a time. As if you my... don't get enough accolades. Oh, please listen. I could, <laughs> no, no, that I, was I a never... terrific, terrific, uh, interview. You know, obviously when I was living in Dallas, you know, watch the, uh, you know, Dale Hansen do the nightly sports, you know, it was obviously a lot different. You know, a lot of people were, on the comment section, you know, talking about 90 seconds and, you know, local sports just isn't enough. And then, you know, with the story like what you and uh, Mike Leslie, your colleague do on a regular basis, which run, which the segment alone runs pretty much 90 seconds to about two minutes. You know, I was really drawn into that, you know, the way you guys do the stories locally, you know, and, uh, and I really, really look forward to, you know, watching it again when I moved down there. Um, before we let you go, you know, we have to talk about your love for the Cincinnati Bengals this past year. <laughs> this is you. Oh, you're watching the. Oh, yeah, yep. <laughs> you're gonna make me cry again. <laughs> some of my some of my friends were giving me grief they were saying that that was totally staged and i'm like are you kidding me um, <laughs> no that was uh that I was the my, oakland game the very I, first I, one. yeah my my wife recorded that and she knows how tortured i've been over the years and i try not to let my Bengals fandom come out unless it really needs to be um you know like wh what am i going to do run around bragging about a team that goes five and eleven um so i don't know it's it's something where it was uh you know first time in my life i got to experience them winning a playoff game and i know it sounds so stupid but um it, you know it was just it was a, a reminder where it hit me in the moment of just a flashback of all of the defeats, all of the losses, all of the days I spent watching them lose in the first round in a bar by myself, sadder than hell. And to finally see them come out on the winning side, yeah. um, it just hit me. And so, you know, was, we get so ingrained in this, this job that we do that we forget to enjoy being sports fans and we yeah. forget to enjoy why we got into this. Right. And for me, it was because I love sports and I love these teams. And, um, you know, if it's ever a Bengals Cowboys Super Bowl, <laughs> I'll cover it logically and rationally like I do every other game I try to cover. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's I'm just glad, uh, you know, I, I again, I've, I've told many people this. I've had I had offers in Cincinnati years ago and I, I was like, I'm never going to go cover my favorite team. So that's going to be. Right, you guys, you can't do it logically. Yeah, <laughs> I understand. Yeah, like how am I supposed? How am I supposed to cover a team um, neutrally when <laughs> I can't? Like, I, you know, maybe I'd be even better because I find myself to be a very logical fan. Maybe I'd you know do a great job of it, but no, I didn't want to touch that. Um, didn't want to make the last glimmer of my sports fandom work. Um, yeah, so that's the one thing that you know in our in our business you got to balance being a fan and. Sure being a reporter, being a, you know, covering it. So, so were you thankful you, you went in Buffalo when you, when Buffalo defeated the Bengals in the, in the, in the playoffs? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll tell you, it's uh, I was, I really hope there aren't Bills fans watching this, but I'm sure there will be, a, there will be some. <laughs> 
I was kind of hoping that the Bills wouldn't beat the Chiefs because one, I didn't I don't think the Bengals would have beat the Bills yeah. in the AFC championship. And two, I didn't want to root for my team against theirs. I mean, if it's you know, if it's not the right. Bengals or the Bill, you know, if it's not the Bengals, I, I want the Bills to come out of the AFC. Sure. Um, and so I just I didn't want to be put in that position. I'm like, just give us just give us the Chiefs or something so we can, you know, everybody can get hop on the bandwagon. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, as a longtime uh, Chicago Bears fans and uh, all of us on the, the, you know, the, who's been suffered long enough, you know, you, you're, you're, you, you really gave us hope. I tell you, if, if a, uh, Mike Brown can get to the Super Bowl, I tell you, if uh, they, then the McCaskies can surely figure out a way to get to Super Bowl and win it, you know, before all of us die. So, yeah, so you know, your video was really, really ins inspiring and hopefully <laughs> inspiration to all of us Bears fans for sure. I tell you that. Much. Well, listen, I, I hope it's not the last time they go, but if it is, uh, you know, a squirrel finds an acorn every now and then. So I'm glad I got, <laughs> I'm glad I got to see it at least. Well, at least but you guys have done a real good job. Uh, you know, the Bengals have done a real good job protecting, you know, beefing up that O-line. You know, you've added, uh, you know, former Cowboy Lyle Collins, uh, I think, mm -hmm. yesterday. Yeah, we'll, so we'll see. We'll they're see what, doing best to we'll, keep Joe, Joe Burrow from becoming the next Andrew Luck. We'll see, we'll see what version of Lyle Collins shows up in Cincinnati. And they've definitely made some moves. But uh, those moves have been more on the let's find value instead of find the best players. So. We'll see. We know the Bengals don't like to spend a whole lot of money, and uh, <laughs> remains to be seen. The, e the AFC is going to be a dog fight. Yes, and, yeah. uh, that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, yes, I'll sir. ask one last question of you, Jonas. Since you grew up in Bo in the Boston area, how does one? And I and I, I can say this because I'm a Browns fan living in New England. I'll I'll just ask the the the, the facetious question that every New England fan asks me as a Brown fan. You grew up in the New England area. How did you become a Bengals fan? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, all my friends growing up are Patriots fans, and so that you yeah. can imagine how fun that was. Yes, I think they won. <laughs> I think they won three or four, like before I, I left for college. Um, yeah, I get reminded daily by my buddies of what I could have chosen. Um, no, in '97, I think I was like seven years old. Um, played with them in a Madden video game. I had a, a childhood book that was on Boomer Esiason. It was really random, yeah. and uh, just kind of all of those things came together and next thing I know I'm cheering for Darnay Scott and Peter Warwick and yeah, Carl, oh, Carl, yeah, yeah, actually yeah. it's more like Carl Pickens and Jeff Blake oh yeah and, yeah 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 um, great team shaking Blake yes yeah. sir so back in the you know and then the Achilles Smith fiasco and uh yeah and so I was kind of I was stuck and this my favorite story when it comes to my Bengals fandom was back in 2004 2005 when they're starting to actually get good with Carson Palmer yeah. And I was 14, 15 at the time. We didn't have Sunday ticket or anything. We didn't even have cable at the time. And I'm just refreshing, hammering refresh on ESPN to like see if they scored. And I would do that for three straight hours. And then finally, my mom's like, why don't you go find a way to watch them? I'm like, that's a good idea. Where can I go? So I would take the tea from where I lived in outside of Boston, 35 mm -hmm. minutes into the city, go to the Fours Bar in downtown Boston yes. with one of my buddies. Yes. There's also another <laughs> bar around there. And they would they let me in. I obviously wasn't 21, though I probably looked close to it with you know big nose, facial, <laughs> facial and all that. I could have I could have passed for 18 for sure. But um no, and they, they let me in and I I was like a kid in a candy store watching the Bengals, you know, on TV drinking waters and eating chicken tenders. And 
Meanwhile, everybody else in there is just some drunk Patriots fan. And <laughs> who is this kid? Who is this kid in a uh, Odell Thurman Bengals jersey screaming? At you? So, um, yeah, deep cut. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I couldn't let that go. Once I find out, I, but a great answer. And of course, living in New England as a Browns fan, I, I feel you very feel feel you very. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, we're, we're going to have some great rivalries. Unfortunately, we have Deshaun Watson, but that's a story for another day. So, but uh, Jonah Javad, thank you very much. Um, uh, Boston kid, went to Missouri. I have to mention that now. And uh, going to Western New York and now uh, making it big in Dallas. Thank you very much for joining us. And we hope to have you on again soon. Thank you, fellas. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, uh, when I get to Dallas, I'll buy you dinner for being on our show for tonight. Sounds good. Thank appreciate you. it, we guys. Appreciate Thank it. you so much. We'll talk Thank again you, soon. Man. Take care. The Double A team will continue on the Barroom Network right after this. Just pisses me off to the fact, like, to no end to see him on another team when he should still be with the Hawks. Ro- uh, Rocky Wirt should call Stan Bowman and just remind him that he's still fired because of that trade. But just call him up and Stan, how you doing? How's the family? Oh, by the way, just so you know, you're still <laughs> fired. I mean, he's uh, so good, dude. And uh, and it made me laugh when Panarin was on the Hawks. He's only good because of Kane. Are you stupid? Did Kane ever have 100 points before Panarin came along? What the hell are you talking about? So, yeah. I don't know. That used to piss me off, too. And I'm happy that when they did trade him, he proved that it wasn't because of Patrick Kane. And I think every no- normal, rational Blackhawks fan would agree with me on that, saying that they're happy seeing him have success without Patrick Kane because Artemi Panarin deserves his props as well. Oh, yeah. And it's not his fault he was traded. You can't hate Panarin because oh, the, no, the Hawks oh, no, is an no, idiot. No, no. Yeah. I don't hate Panarin. Oh, yeah. Well, I love Panarin. lost three trades involving Brandon Saab. Not one, not two, three. I love Panarin because he gets in. You could tell he's passionate. Like he's throwing gloves over at Brad Marchand. I love yeah. that. And Artemi Panarin, he challenged some political controversies in Russia a couple years ago. And he had to take a leave of absence to go help his family, like protect them or whatever. And the Rangers had like a 300 winning percentage while he was gone. So, in terms of most valuable players to his team, it's hard to argue against Artemi Panarin for the New York Rangers. Yeah. And over this weekend, uh, one of our family members, you know, asked me, and a lot of times, like people who aren't huge NHL fans, but really big Blackhawks, they don't necessarily don't know like how certain players are doing, especially over in the Eastern Conference. That's kind of why we invented this show. Yeah. They don't watch the games, which is understandable. And, you know, a when, obviously, when the Rangers make their way over to Chicago or vice versa, it, it reminds people like, oh, yeah, Artemi Panarin, how's he doing? And a question I get a lot is, how did the Hawks ever let that guy go? And then you have to explain, yeah, it was probably one of the worst trades I've ever seen the Blackhawks do in the past 20 years. Um, but then you have to remind that person like, yeah, this guy is not only is he doing good with the Rangers, he gets MVP votes every single year, it seems. And he's going to win one one of these years. <laughs> Well, what a show we had tonight. Uh, Jonah Javad of WFAA in Dallas. And we also uh, had a great, uh, the great Alan True of 24-7 Sports. Uh, we'd like to thank both of them uh, for coming on the show. And, Stephen, um, we bring these diverse voices, uh, Alan True, uh, Asian, and also, uh, uh, um, also Jonah being Persian. Um, this is why we have this show, to bring on the, the diverse voices that we have in sports media 
and, and across the country. Yeah, without a doubt. And I always thank these guests for, you know, taking time out of their busy schedule to come on our show. And, uh, you know, uh, we've had real fun doing this. And, um, you know, we really enjoyed the, uh, uh, the opportunity to talk to these people that we don't regularly get to do. And only, you know, the Barroom Network has been, you know, kind enough to give both of us the opportunity to do uh, this show every other week. And, uh, you know, we don't take this opportunity for granted. And, uh, you know, we both thank the, you know, Aldo for producing and also uh, uh, people for uh, joining and, uh, you know, commenting on our show. And we have a, a announcement uh, starting in our next show in two weeks. Uh, we will be going down to one hour instead of the uh, full two hours that we've been doing. We have another show. Baseball season is coming up, so Barroom Network will be having shows. Um, oh, so it's going to be the next uh, the next Double uh, A team is set for Monday, April fourth at seven Central Time, uh, eight Eastern Time. Um, and of course, that will be one hour. That show will start to be one hour as we're going to be going to. Uh, shorten the uh, length of the show. Um, mm-hmm. And we're also going to be having uh, a show after us about uh, the baseball and the White Sox. Very important because uh, baseball is very important to Chicago and the city. And uh, we want to make right. sure that you're covered and get all the reaction that you need in regards to um, the Cubs and the White Sox. The next double A team is set for Monday, April 4th at 7 and 8 p.m. We'll have guests for you at that time. Instead of having two guests, we'll reduce down to one guest and we'll have our uh, segments at the beginning and at the end as usual. But, um, sure. you know, it, it, it's it's been fun been doing two hours, but uh, sometimes going down to one hour is even better. Absolutely. We could have one guest or we could have two guests and talk about the same subject as well, you know, allowing two guests to, you know, have uh, different voices. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to fit within the hour. Next week, the South uh, Side, uh, what was the name of the show? Uh, South Burbs Hitman covering the White Sox will be on uh, next Monday. And uh, we mentioned uh, our next show is uh, Monday, April 4th at uh, 7, uh, 8, 7 Central. Uh, hopefully, um, if you have any f- guests that you would like to see us interview, uh, we're welcome. You know, we always have a, you know, it's a, te- you know, very, very difficult to find guests uh, like we did uh, with the Alan True on uh, such short notice. You know, we thank him. But, you know, we we're, we know that it will always not going to be very, very easy. But if you have any guests that, that you would like to uh, have us uh, interview, you know, we're more than welcome to uh you know, guest suggestions, and uh, and uh, we'll do our best to accommodate the requests. And uh, don't forget at 8 o'clock Central Time, it's Dan and Aldo, Bear Their Souls, and it's uh, always interesting to see that show as well. For mm-hmm. um, Stephen Nagishi and our two guests tonight, Alan True and Jonah Javad, I'm Ken Fang. Thanks for watching the AA team this week. We'll be back in on April 4th at 7 Central Time. And until next time, Have a good night, and we'll see you then. Good night, everybody.